and we are live. Welcome to the Citadel Builders podcast. This show revolves around discussions with pleb builders actively looking to create and develop circular economies, advance the use of Bitcoin for long-term savings and day-to-day transactions. We aim to raise awareness of the dangers of ever encroaching government and corporate surveillance, showing people how to take practical steps to increase their privacy and sovereignty. In so doing, we aim to add our voices to those fighting to reduce the corruption made possible by fiat money and its destructive consequences. Block by block, we build and participate in the circular Bitcoin economy of free and sovereign individuals. This show is hosted by we three gentlemen, the ever pessimistic Doomer Dash, the over contemplative Meta Mike, and me, the always affable and amicable Andy. We are a value for value podcast, uh, so we uh, appreciate any sat boost you can send us on Fountain or donation you can give us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. Diving in, Japan segment. Dash, what do we got? Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, we got some uh, some interesting updates um, this week. So I'd like to start with talking about the budget, which was approved. Um, I believe that was um, a little earlier this week, and we have a record budget. Um, so it's 114 trillion yen, um, which was up about six trillion from you know, the, the, the budget last year. Um, that's, you know, it's around 1 trillion USD. It's just below that now with the exchange rate being where it is. Um, and the the sort of headline numbers in here that I wanted to step through, I mean, the first one to talk about is the defense portion of that budget, which is now up to 1% of the Japanese uh, GDP. So uh, 60 billion roughly of US dollar um, has been allocated for defense spending. Um, and, um, you know, that was, that was, um, that was up, um, uh, I think it was, uh, a couple of percentage points. So it's the, you know, the highest, uh, for military, oh, sorry, it was up, um, 22% from last year's. So significant increase in defense spending from the Japanese, which we knew was coming, but this is, the, these, these are the actual numbers now. Um, also significant was the social welfare component of the, uh, budget. So we have spoken previously on this podcast about how that was, you know, obviously an issue for Japan with the aging population. I mean, this is not just Japan. Obviously, this is a, an issue consistent across the G7. It's it's pretty. It's it's especially um, an issue in Japan, though. And um, it's already social welfare accounts for one third of the budget um, in, in in Japan, um, and that was up one point seven percent from last year's budget. Um, and I thought also what was significant was the um, the next item on the on the budget taking up twenty five percent was the interest payments on bonds. So a, a full quarter of the Japanese you know annual annual budget for the country is spent just on interest on bonds. That was up three point seven percent from last year, um, and. You'll, you guys will also be pleased to know that they, they managed to get some money for Ukraine in there as well. So there was uh, there was one trillion uh, yen just just held aside for the U- Ukraine crisis. So not not sure how that's going to be spent, but I'm sure we can expect maybe Zelensky to ha- to send a video begging um, a video or something over over sometime soon to get hold of that money. Um, and so you might be wondering, well, how how the hell is this going to be paid for? Um, so, well, f- firstly, there was the tax income, and that was a record 
um, this year's the highest revenue on, on record. It's it's only covering actually sixty nine trillion of that one hundred and fourteen trillion number. So um, that that's that's paid for through through the tax income, and the rest, the shortfall, is going to be paid for by issuing new bonds. Um, so the issuing of, of new bonds is going to account for thirty one percent of the budget. You know, nearly a third of the budget is now being paid for on the on essentially the credit card, uh, the, 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 the country's credit card. Um, and this is this is consistent with the, the post Lehman year. So I did a little bit of digging and prior to the, the, the Lehman collapse and the, the global financial crisis, um, new bond issuance was accounting for around 20 percent of the uh, Japanese annual budget. Um, and, and since then. Since 2008, that's been consistently around the 30, 40 percent mark. You know, it was up, it was up to 40 percent around the, the time of Lehman, and it's been consistently around that mark since. Um, so, you know, um, Japan is not, you know, is is um, can, cannot, you know, has to cover um, a, a good third of its expenses with um, with issuing new debt. Um, and so that number that you know I, I, I just mentioned, the 25 percent. Um, of the budget, which is taken up by interest payments, which is growing, is only going to continue to grow in the future. Um, Greg Foss talks a lot about this, about the, the math, um, you know, and you can't deny math. And math is kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a bitch, right? It, it, it comes to bite you at some point. Well, we can definitely expect that with the, with the Japanese um, uh, budget. It's going to continue, continue, continue to be a, a large, big, larger and larger part of that budget. Um, going forward, so yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting. Another another interesting thing was that um, <laughs> this. I mean, this is typical of how governments work, as as, as we know. Um, but the, the there there is a certain classification of bonds called construction bonds, and these are supposed to be used for things like infrastructure. So, for example, building building a bridge or building some sort of public works. Um, but they've kind of reclassified these now to to be so they can use them for military bases and military. You know, or, or infrastructure related to military bases, and this is the first time that these bonds are actually these, these classification of bonds are going to be used for such a purpose. So again, we're we're seeing this sort of creep towards um, you know reinterpreting of things and um, and 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 definitely a push, I believe, based on you know pressure from Washington for Japan to ramp up its military to spend more money that it doesn't have on on military. And and a sort of you know scrambling around and reinterpreting and etc of, of of the constitution of the law of the presidents etc to 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 justify this. Um, so that was um, I thought you know I thought that was very interesting a uh, very interesting budget. I thought it was very maybe kind of pivotal um, budget. I mean it's not not none of it was really a surprise, but it was it was kind of sobering to see it all in black and white. Um, gent gentlemen, any thoughts on uh, on that budget? I wanted to ask some questions about the bonds. Are you saying that um, the interest on the bonds is accounting for currently one third? Was it of the GDP? Um, so it's it's a quarter of the, uh, not the GDP. A so it's a quarter. It's a quarter of the of the annual budget for government spending. Oh, okay, and that's that's with the bonds having been at like super suppressed low rates for a long time, right? Like I think the rates are way below one percent. And has been for for yes over a decade, right? Correct. And and now they're going to be increasing the amount that they borrow to fund like Ukraine and uh, the military. 
Primarily for the to fund the military and the I mean the, the biggest numbers are the military and the social welfare. Um, and yes, they will be borrowing to cover the shortfall. So and 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 the amount they're borrowing is roughly one third of the uh, annual budget is not covered by the tax base. The tax base only covers about two thirds, um, and so one third of that spending needs to be covered by issuing new debt. Yeah, I mean, it's it just sounds amazing that the rates are this low and they're still spending that much just on interest, and and then it's going to increase. What, so what does this all mean for the yen? So, again, you, you would have thought that we would see major depreciation in, in the yen, right? If you just look at the interest rates, you know, Japan's at around, I mean, the last time I checked, it was um, the, the 10 years at something like um, 0.3, right, compared to the U.S., which is up near 4% now. So you just wonder, like, who, who on earth is buying Japanese debt, um, and you know, you would, you would have thought the only buyer for Japanese debts going for, forward is going to be <laughs> the bank of Japan, right? Um, which was just going to mean monetization of that debt. So, I mean, I would just, I would have just thought that just the math would say that was, um, you know, um, a one way street to devaluation of the yen. Um, but you know, we've seen the yen kind of defy gravity, um, time and time again. And it's, I, I would say it's done that this year. Um, and maybe surprised a few people by coming back to, you know, strengthening a little bit to come to settle around what, you know, 130 yen to the dollar. So, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what kind of, um, you know, machinations and, 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 and what have you sort of how the global financial system, you know, is, is maybe working to, you know, to, to, to maintain as much as it can the uh, status quo. Um, but, but I mean, just just I mean, just looking at the math, you, you would have thought that can't be sustained you know, mid to long term that something has to give at some point. Right. Yeah. I wonder how much longer it can go on. And I, I guess, does this also mean that uh, there's no chance that they're going to be raising rates? It sounds like if they, if they raise rates the way the U S has been, or if they ever tried to, it would, it would all collapse even faster than it has been in the U S over the past year. You would have thought that, Mike. And I also, you know, you're looking at the sort of banking system contagion that's going on in, in the U.S. and, and uh, in Europe. And you think um, that kind of thing must be in Japan's future, right? If rates were significantly raised, because I mean, I haven't looked at the exact numbers, but you would have thought that some of the, 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 the majority holders of um the Japanese government bonds are going to be the, you know, the insurance companies or the banking companies here. So then their uh, the kind of book value would be, you know, would, would decline rapidly if there was a, a similar increase, you know, in the Japanese um, interest rates for the, for the, for the long-term long duration debt. So, you know, part of me was thinking is, is one of the reasons that they're so they're sticking to their guns on the yield curve control because they're aware of this, um, crisis we saw some japanese banking stocks drop along along with the american and european banks to and, and a similar sort of number like i think it was like like 16 20 percent drop and so you, you just wonder how much of that is the government's kind of forced here between a, a rock and a hard place to to maintain the yield curve control to protect the banks and that will then lead to um a rapid depreciation in the end at some point Yeah, it'll thankfully, be interesting to follow. Thankfully, we, we've learned recently that 
math is a white supremacist construct and is not important. So <laughs> the that came at the right time to save Japan. But I do think, I mean, when you look at the yen, you know, you asked about the yen, Mike. I mean, just an observation that they bazooka blasted at them and the Chinese, right? Like six months ago, they started bazooka blasting, trying to stop the, the run up. And despite the bazooka blasting and, and nailing all of the uh, those uh, the, the short sellers, I forget which uh, what, what the name of that that hedge fund was that was trying to clip the yen there. But despite that, you know, it it said that you know they got it down to one twenty eight nine, but yet it's still climbing. I mean, it's still inching back up. I mean, I, it's it. I don't know if we can uh, make much. Uh, much of a, a a strong stance yet but i mean it's it was at it's at 132 it 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 didn't see a, a rapid move back down to 115 or 110 or anything like that it, it it's maintaining that 130 132 133 level so i mean going forward if that keeps pace it wouldn't you know defy all expectation to see that you know 140 145 again q4 perhaps Yeah, I've noticed that it, it creep it, it, the creep back up, and I think right now, what is it in like the one thirty somewhere? Yeah, one thirty two. Did you have something? Yeah. Dash, I, I cut you off. Yeah, I was, and I was going to say, no, no, not investment device, but it, it, advice, but it might be time to you know hold some dollars, or you know, well, obviously on this show we'd say hold Bitcoin, but um, if you need to hold fiat, maybe maybe hold dollars, or maybe. Um, you know, look for a job that pays in dollars. I, I will say that one, one, on one note uh, on that, um, dollars are not protected by the banking insurance in Japan. So, you know, that in Japan, it's a little bit different to America. I think in America, it's 250K uh, FDIC insured, right? Um, Japan's, yeah, yeah Japan's actually, um, it's, it's 10 million yen as per my understanding, which would be around, what, 80K or 70K or something like that based on current exchange rates. US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, it, it's not as good, but but you need to be in yen to to, to enjoy that um, that protection. So that's maybe one thing to keep in mind. But um, but yeah, I think I think we can expect the the yen to, you know, you you would expect some kind of devaluation going forward. Um, yeah, well, by the way, didn't they just arbitrarily uh, increase that two hundred fifty thousand FDIC limit just to bail out like some of these parties that uh, were involved in this bankruptcy or the the recent bankruptcies? Yeah, they they made everybody whole, right? So it didn't matter what you, what you had in there as a depositor, right? So that, I mean, basically was a government rug pull on that two hundred fifty thousand dollar cap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's but yeah, that's well, for who, that's for whom they choose to save, though, right? It's uh, so right, I think right. they left they left it gray. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do like this. I'm I'm enjoying this. Um, over the past year, it's it's nice when the dollar increases against the yen at a faster pace than the, the yen inflation because like there has been inflation too, but oh, the dollar got way stronger against the yen last year in that far outpaced inflation. So if you have income or savings or whatever in dollars, it's it's a great time to be in Japan spending yen. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's been great. The um, yeah, it, it's funny that you mentioned that like the 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 dollar sucking sucks less than the yen sucking so in the end if you're in japan with dollars your life is, is pretty good yeah and over the long run being in japan with bitcoin or anywhere with bitcoin that'll be the case absolutely but i'm not used to that or, I, or you know in my 
in my experience, I've, I've, I've not seen what that, that looks like on the ground. So a, a little taste of that comes from the Japan, uh, the, the, the yen sucking more than, than the dollar, which is, you know, bad for everyone else, but good for me. So screw you all. I'll take the benefit. Why not enjoy the decline, as they say. Um, on 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 that note, so um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, CBDCs. Give an update there. Um, in and on, on in particular, what's going on in Japan? So there was some interesting developments. There was a um, there was some kind of what should we call it? Like a like tradfi trying to be cool conference that happened in Maranouchi uh, at the end of March. Um, it's called Fin Swim. I don't know. It's spelled F-I-N forward, uh, forward stroke S-W-M conference that happened. Um, and the usual suspects were there. You know, it was the sort of government, um, some, some people from the government, some people from the Ministry of Finance. There was um, Mitsubishi were there. And, um, and Kuroda, the outgoing chief of the Bank of Japan, he was there and he was giving, um, you know, he was um, giving a, a talk. Um, and he actually explicitly mentioned CBDCs uh, in 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 you know words that have been interpreted as his individual opinion more so than an official position of the Bank of Japan. Um, but given he is still the acting chief, I think I think carries significant weight. He explicitly said that the the CBD was something that the, that Japan would have to uh, realize, bring to fruition, if you like, going forward. He was very explicit in that. And, um, you know, um, and so that there had been some news in the, especially the overseas media, I think it was about a year ago, where, you know, people saying, oh, the Bank of Japan is, is, is not going to do a CBDC. You know, to, and, and we, we've tried to clarify that, that, that on this show. And just, just to do that again, you know, that was widely misreported. It wasn't that they're, that they're not going to do a CBDC. They're not thinking of doing a CBDC. It's, it's that there's no concrete plan right now, right? So there's no, it's not like, um, yes, uh, March next year, we, we're going to do a CBDC. There's nothing concrete. There's nothing explicit. There's nothing in legislation. There's nothing, um, you know, there's no schedule. But from what we're hearing from private companies, from what we're hearing from now, Kuroda, um, you know, there is, the sentiment is that they, is this something that they will do? We just don't know when. Um, and, you know, I did a little bit of digging here because what was also interesting is that Mitsubishi were also very prominent at this event. They, they were also talking along with um, uh, Kuroda. And it seems that there's some kind of um, uh, something going on with Mitsubishi and a company called Soramitsu, um, which is the first time I'd heard of this Soramitsu. Um, oh, the shipwright company. Yeah, they're very shitcoiny. I, I, I looked into them a little bit today, and they, they've got the hands in all sorts of, you know, Ethereum and all sorts of uh, Polkadot and all the other shitcoiny things. Now, so it seems that what they are doing is they're looking to some kind of legislation that was passed last June in Japan and will take effect this summer, which will clear the way for uh, the issuance of stable coins. So this is a little bit different to CBDCs, but, you know of course related um but apparently uh minna no ginko and shikoku ginko the two banks will um are actually preparing to issue yen stable coins in line with this revised um legislation um and soramitsu and ufj consider themselves as kind of um 
I guess, kind of middlemen or, or, or brokers in this in this new brave new world we're going to be living in, where people are going to be using the yen stable coins. Uh, they're, they're trying to develop some sort of platform which will allow for interoperability of different stable coins. For example, stable coins built on different quote unquote blockchains, like um, you know Ethereum and, and, and whatever other shitcoin blockchain you you would do that on. Um, and so, yeah, they're positioning themselves as the sort of middleware, the middleman in 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 this in this brave new world. I looked a little bit into Sora, Soramitsu, and this was this was interesting stuff because it was like it was this it was yeah it was very shitcoiny, but it was also this kind of neo-colonialism thing. Because if you go on their website, you can see one of the things that they're bragging about is that they've brought a CBDC to Cambodia. Um, so they they've been working with the National Bank of Cambodia, and and they've launched some kind of um, you know it's kind of like a smartphone app and and and, and a shitcoin. Uh, CBDC in Cam- Cambodia, um, and they've, they've been, you know, very, very much uh, part of that. Also, they have MOUs with uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, and Laos to, to do um, similar things, right? So they're actually doing trials or proof of concepts of CBDC. So it's like all of these kind of ex-Japan, you know, colonies from from the war. Uh, this this country, Soramitsu, is over there running these experiments. And you also look at the Japan's foreign direct investment, you know, and it, it sort of it lines up with with these countries, with Cambodia, Vietnam, the Philippines. Um, so it's interesting to see maybe you know there's some sort of experiments going on, neo colonial sort of experiments going on in these countries before perhaps you know that that, that know-how is implemented in the in the in the mother country um sometime soon so um but also what I, what I thought was interesting is that we have reported on this show before about jcb the japan credit bureau which is the major credit card issuer in japan um who have been doing private CBDCs um, in Japan, and I wondered, you know, what well, what's how, what's the relationship between Sodomitsu and UFJ and JCB? And it seems that this might be some sort of um, intercabal squabble. You know, there's the, in Japan we have the Keiretsu and the different, you know, kind of um, uh, what would you call them, like um, corporate interests um, that that do that do compete out here. And you know, I looked into JCB, and they're they're part of the Sumitomo Mitsui um cabal if you like and so perhaps there could be some sort of squabble here between the you know the mitsubishi and the sumitomo mitsui cabals in, in terms of who's going to you know be leading on this on on this on this kind of brave new shitcoiny cbdc world and so that'll be something we i'm going to keep close close eye on going forward and uh i'll be sure to report any updates um uh, on our show but uh but gentlemen any any thoughts on uh on on, on these developments I'm just thrilled to hear the name Soromitsu. I owned the Soromitsu shitcoin for a while there, and I got my ass kicked with it. So may they? Uh, I'm glad to see that they are back in the in the running here. But yeah, they are they are uh, top flight suck um, altcoin land. So I'm curious to see what exactly they do. Um, they've had the um, the what was it Fuji money? I, you know, unfortunately nobody uses Liquid, but you know, Liquid's had that uh, a yen stablecoin for a while i'm kind of curious to see how that works out because the dollar even though that's the, the one most in demand manages to always find a way to, to crapping out i don't know what anybody's going to do with a yen stablecoin to try and keep that thing at a peg uh considering how easy um how you know easy that one is to uh push around up or down at the moment you guys like how are they going to keep that peg do you have any idea well here's what they said 
here's the two things that were in one article I read that are going to be the great benefits of these <laughs> stable coins. Like one, one is that we're going to be able to do, um, you know, you, have, you, you bank transfers out here, Furikomi. You're going to be able to reserve your bank transfers, apparently. You're going to be, I don't, you can say, like, I don't know, two, week, two weeks this Friday, I want to send money. Um, so this is this is this is the amazing innovation they're bringing with the uh, with the stable coins. Game I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> that was one thing. The second thing that they mentioned is is they'll be able to. And it, it was just it was just dropped in the article with no kind of context or or explanation. And so I I, I really don't know. But it, it said something. I mean, it, it, my my translation, my interpretation of it was um, it was like Hoyu Gaku no Seigen, which as far as I know would be like. Li limitation on the amount you can hold um, would be the English translation. Um, but again, there was sort of no context or explanation in the article, so <laughs> it sounded very dystopian. And I wasn't sure if that if that was really a, a feature or a sales point for the average, you know, Japanese. But uh, but that's something else that they're, they're going to be able to do with these stable coins. So <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't think sure, they've really thought means... it thought it thought it through. No, I don't think so either. I mean, it, it's it's really it's um. It's really amazing because this comes out at the same time as because it was this week. I'm sure you guys saw that where it was Lagarde or one of them. I forget which who it was from the uh, from the ECB that was talking about Euro. I forget what the hell she called the Euro coin or whatever, but the Euro uh, CBDC. So um, like all these kind of things just magically popping up at the same time. It's amazing what uh, what uh, non uh, non coordinated messaging happens uh, in the the network state of uh 2023. I'm curious, is this stable coin going to be uh, kind of like Tether or is it going to be more like the CBDC future? Because Tether yeah. at least gives you some privacy benefits if you're for, as far as digital money goes, right? Yeah, my understanding it's going to be nothing like Tether is my understanding. It's going to it's going to be more like what what is the uh, the, the so is it Circle the kind of government approved American oh, the USDC. stable? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very I'm not up to up to speed on on shit coins and stable coins and whatever. But my understanding is the circle one is that kind of KYC kind of blessed by the establishment one. Um, it will be it will be more like that than it will be like that. It will be a completely permissioned system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to see the point about the Southeast Asian countries. I guess we've all been wondering which country is going to do it first. I mean, I I, I always thought that it would be the u.s but it makes sense that they're going to try to do a test run in some poorer country do you think the first one where it'll be totally implemented where it'll they will completely get rid of cash paper cash um will be southeast asia well apparently like cambodia did this uh, be began this cbdc in 2020 based on the news report i saw and um, i you know i was only just sort of catching up today and this is what the sort of mitsu were involved in so i don't know to what extent they've got like that adoption of that and, and whether they've managed to get rid of the cash or not apparently they were the second only the second country in the world behind i think it was the bahamas to to do the cbdc back in 2020 so yeah i would fully expect that these markets will be used as test beds um, to implement these CBDCs. And I would have thought the, the Anglosphere equivalent would probably be like the UK and Australia and Canada. We'd expect those, you know, the, essentially colonies of the US to be the first um, markets, I suppose, where CBDCs would be implemented um, before they come to the States. And I think similar in Japan, you know, it's this kind of ex-colonies, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, in, in, Indo 
China Peninsula, where, where we'd expect these um, experiments to be, you know, um, completed before they come to Japan. That's what I would expect. I guess Australia does make more sense because a place like Cambodia or Vietnam or something, the I think there's too much poverty and like lack of technical capabilities. So a lot of people don't have the like the smartphone or the POS system set up to be able to do that. And they have to deal with cash. But Australia has proved that as far as the first world goes, it's they're happy to sign up to for the mass enslavement programs. Uh, and uh, I think it would make sense for somewhere like Australia, New Zealand to, to be the, the test bed for this. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, as I think we talked a little bit before, I mean, the U or not the U S the, the Japanese have major investments in Vietnam. That's where all their uh, immigration is coming from huge in the Philippines. They've dumped a ton of money over the years and investment over there. So I guess it's time to start pulling the cash out to support the local economy through expanding their fiat nonsense CBDC over there. Yeah, neo-colonialism, right? There's, there's really no other way to um, to describe it, I believe. Um, good. And I, I thought we'd, we'd end the segment on a little bit of, uh, a, I don't know if it's a fun note or a bright note. Um, Andy, you, Mike, you should have taken the bet last few weeks ago when, when we were talking about masks. I know, I was I thinking think. that same thing. Yep. <laughs> So I don't know. I, you gentlemen have probably seen as well. There, there are more and more free thinking individuals, I think, who are showing up in, in Japan. So I would say the numbers probably around anecdotally speaking around me, I've seen maybe 10, 5, 10 percent of people now walking around without masks. Gen gentlemen, any what, what about your observations? Yeah, 100 percent. I was I am thrilled to see um, I'd say what, you know, one in one in 10, maybe around Tokyo. I don't know what it looks like out in you know saitama or some of the you know the surrounding districts and further out you go in the country but in the city you know you see you know one in ten that might be a little bit optimistic but it's certainly not a rare occurrence anymore to see a full face which is you know heartening at least you know my brain doesn't have to sit there and construct a a, a new face for this person that won't show me there so i'm, I'm happy about that at least my what have you yeah, seen? I'm starting to see I'm starting to see a little bit more. Uh, I mean, still a lot of people wearing masks, though. That's the problem. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe it'll be gradually than suddenly. <laughs> I I don't think it's good. So this is my new thesis. Uh, I'm doubling down, right? So, I'm, but I'm not I'm not gonna bet. I'm not gonna bet any sats. But I think that the mask is gonna be like so. It's so I think like virtue signaling in Japan of course exists right and it's a bit different to the west so maybe maybe it's not a ukrainian flag label badge or or or, 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 or you know for social network um picture um but i think the mass is going to become somewhat of a, a way to virtue signal um now there's there's some data that's coming out so that in may on may the 8th the government is officially downgrading corona uh covid 19 to be a class five uh, common infectious disease. So this will put it in the same classification as the flu, for example. So this is the other kind of, you know, the government is just trying to push people to back to normalization. They want us to go back to spending money and uh, so they can raise the tax base, I guess. But um, but uh, a number of um, presidents or, or CEOs or what have you of companies have been interviewed uh, as part of a Nikkei article that I read. And they were asked, you know, okay, well, what are you going to do after, the, after this, um, this deadline? 
uh, are you going to remove the uh, mandate for office? Uh, uh, sorry, the mandate for masks in the office, right? And only thirty-one uh, percent are actually going to do that, right? Which means almost seventy percent of businesses are still going to require or encourage, which is essentially the same thing, um, their employees to wear masks in the office, even even past the May eighth, when this is just when we're officially downgrading this um, this illness to the flu. Um, I also noticed things like McDonald's Japan or, or a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, visible kind of businesses who are, who are um, directly dealing with the public. So McDonald's being a good example, but they are encouraging their staff to wear masks beyond uh, May the 8th. So I, I feel like the mask going forward is going to be almost like a tie. If you remember like the Japanese, I mean, even now in Japan, if you go to an important meeting, even if it's, you know, uh, the middle of summer, you kind of everyone wears a tie. You know, if you, if you, especially if you're going to a customer, um, and I feel like the mask is going to be like the tie, especially if the business world going forward. Like you just, it'd be unthinkable to go to a customer without wearing a mask because it would almost be, it would be like a rude thing, right? It'd be like walking in someone's house with your shoes on, um, equivalent. So I feel like that the mask is going to just become part of Japanese virtue signaling culture, um, like the tie, and that going forward, you know, we can probably expect at least half the population, but probably up to sort of 70%. I think in Japan, the virtue signals are probably around 70% of the population. But um, yeah, I, I'm doubling down. I'm, I'm sticking to my guns, really. I'm thinking we're going to be at least 70% for the rest of time. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to bet any sats. G gentlemen, any thoughts on that? It's pretty bleak, but it's probably true. Uh, well, I mean, I'll say this: I've, I've, um, from where I'm at, at the, um, uh, from universities and whatnot, they are making a strict uh, statement that these are optional and that people are not required to wear them anymore. So I do think, and that the government stance, uh, for uh, in their mind, is is that uh, they are going to treat it like the flu. So although uh, at the moment there is still a residual um, statement on um who are uh, of uh, of people willing to or wanting to uh, implement this it seems i i have you know you know i i'll hold out some hope that actually you know we'll see a return to you know pre pre covid levels over the next 18 24 months andy those those bright happy young you know, talented, enthusiastic students will not wear, yeah, they won't be wearing masks, but as soon as they have to go and look for a job, they're going to put the same depressing, you know, black suit, tie, and they'll put their masks on to go to their interviews and, wear, and they'll join companies and they'll wear masks for the rest of their lives. You, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> I think you have a much higher opinion of my students than I do, but God bless you. Um, <laughs> as, uh, but, you know, you could be right. I mean, give, uh, I will allow you to be the doomer and expect the worst, and I will continue to be the affable and amicable one, hoping for the best. Hope reigns supreme. Fair enough. Thank you. Well, that, well, that uh, concludes the Japan segment for this week. Good. That was excellent. That was cool. All right. Builder segment. Who are we talking about this week? Tunnel Sats. Have either of you guys heard of Tunnel Sats? Probably not. Smaller thing just coming out recently. Tunnel Sats uh, provides scripts uh, for lightning nodes enabling hybrid mode, clear net and Tor, and offers paid VPN servers on various con uh, continents for fixed terms. Our secured, uh, our secured and Lightning only uh, configured VPNs support port forwarding to connect with other Lightning nodes. The Lightning network functions in rapid growing 
Speed as infrastructure for payments across the globe between merchants, creators, consumers, institutions, and investors. Hence, the key pillars of sustained growth are their nodes by providing reliable, liquid, discoverable, trustless, and fast connection points between those parties. For fast communication, establishing clear net connections between nodes is inevitable. The effort of creating a valuable clear net over VPN node is quite high and intense because it touches several disciplines not every node runner is comfortable with. Required knowledge of the command line, firewall handling, network details, trust in and choosing of a suitable VPN provider that offers all the features we need and cares about privacy and security and of course the configuration of a lightning node itself making it easy just to leave it as is therefore we this company comes to the conclusion that this process has to be simplified why should you use this service well providing lightning services is about privacy reliability connectivity speed and liquidity relying your uh, relay uh, relying your Node connectivity to a single service uh, Tor is a risk regarding connectivity and network stability, as anyone running a Lightning node can testify to. But with Hybrid One connectivity, you offer your payment and routing services to be faster, more reliable, and yet there is a privacy concern when you do it with your home IP. You can expose your rough location uh, and potentially your home and your node system to attacks from the internet. With our solution, uh, Tunnelsat, you get the best of both worlds. Your node and home IPAC, uh, IP stay hidden behind Tor and uh, a valuable VPS IP address, which will be a node's face to the public and it's shared with your peers. You may see higher reliability causing not only higher uptime, fewer offline nodes, but also grading, greater routing numbers. Uh, you provide a better user experience for customers using this uh, tunnel sets uh, and actually using lightning, lightning as a payment system, which could argue is the benefit and best of both worlds. You can find them on Twitter uh, at TunnelSats or their main sites uh, or their main site, which is TunnelSats.com. That is it for the builders segment. Gentlemen, should we launch into the second part? of Yarvin's Bitvana or Bitcost. Let's do it. All right. As before, I will read. And as you feel so led by the spirit, jump in and offer a comment. So we finished up the first half last time. And this time, we'll jump into Bitvana before with Bitcost. And as Mike mentioned before, Bitcost is C-A-U-S-T. So as in Holocaust, but this is his, uh, this is Curtis Yarvin's positive spin on uh, a Bitcoin future, I guess. We'll see what he has to say. Beginning, Curtis says, now let's assume that perhaps due to the eternal secret financial power of, of us Jews at Cross River Bank or some other slender lifeline of legitimacy between legitimate crypto and legitimate banking su survives. Of course, my 2006 theory uh, was originally developed for gold and applies it as at least as well to gold, which is a lot harder to kill. In any case, posit an unlike an unkillable Bitcoin. In 2023, it is now much easier to see the road to Bitvana, to a world in which Bitcoin is the universal universal numerator and monetary standard, in which all prices and all financial assets are denominated in Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin has already gotten most of the orders of magnitude it needs, but at least three are the hardest. Ethereum, he says, parentheses, could still overtake Bitcoin in the race for monetary standardization, which is still possible. Proof of stake coins are more susceptible to outside pressure, but leak way less money, a semi-stable bimetallic standard like the old gold-silver system may, may also be possible. But let's suspend this conversation for simplicity. There Can are two I just uh, I... stop you there? So on the, his, his idea that Ethereum could overtake Bitcoin seems to be you know, premised on this idea that proof of stake has a superior aspect over proof of work in that it leaks less money is the, is the language he uses. And as far as I know, and I, and I think he mentions it a little bit later in the article as well, his, his idea behind this is that miners are kind of forced sellers of Bitcoin. So with proof of work, you, you have to expend energy to, uh, issue, you know, to sol solve the cryptographic puzzles and, 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 and therefore benefit from the new issuance. Um, but you have to, you're kind of forced to sell that to then pay your energy bills. That's his, that's his, I think his, his thesis there. But I think this betrays a lack of understanding in, in the developments of what's going on in the mining world, uh, specifically around things like um, utilization of w what would otherwise be stranded or wasted energy. For example, things like the made, especially mining um, uh, actors with sort of access to the public financial markets, not selling their Bitcoin. So if you look at the holdings of, you know, Marathon or Riot, they, they have a significant number of Bitcoin on their balance sheets. So they're actually using to pay their, they're paying their energy bills with, with debt rather than with Bitcoin. And so I feel like anyone who really gets Bitcoin, and I feel like the miners being as in as they are, are, you know, they tend to get it. They understand that this is a race to acquire sats. It's not about, you know, buying the sats and selling them and trying to, you know, increase the amount of paper money you have in your bank account. And so I feel like this is another fundamental misunderstanding of his when it comes to, you know, specifically the POW um, uh, versus POS. And, um, and, and it's actually nonsense that Bitcoin leaks money. It's, 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 a, it's a silly suggestion of his. Also, in the same way, you could say that in order to keep the lights on at the Fed and have all of these professional PhD economists pushing propaganda all day, that leaks money in the same way, too. And there's no proof of stake system or fiat system that's going to exist without relentless propaganda coming from the expert class. Yeah, I mean, and neatly, and also... Um to say nothing that the Ethereum can just change its monetary policy on, on a drop of a hat, right? Just um, they could just do a hard fork tomorrow and in increase the issuance, or you know, do what do do whatever they wanted and flood flood the, the system with uh, more tokens. So, I mean, it's just it's uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a silly take of his. So, just just wanted to point that out. Yeah, he's got actually uh, a previous article that goes through his whole thought process. We should actually read that one. That'd be interesting um, to kind of comment on where he, he comments on Bitcoin versus Ethereum um, more at length. That's a long kind of detailed article about what he thinks of the two systems and why he thinks it. So that maybe in the future we can go through that one as a, as a comparison. But he continues. There are two theories of hyper-Bitcoinization. Unfortunately, the leading theory is just plain wrong and a trap. Why would all these super smart coin people believe this wrongness? Well, a parable. New section. The parable of hyper the, the parable of the hyperpope. The planet Thayer 
a trillion light years away is ruled by Hyperpope. So Hyperpope, through his magic hyper hat, can speak to God 24-7 and is also immortal. So is his absolute and beneficent rule of the happy planet Thayer. Only one thing can end his eternal reign, the, the, the birth of a russet two-headed heifer. On this birth, God will act. The mutant cow's owner becomes the new hyperpope. The truth is that the hyperpope is just a dude and his hat is just a hat. He appears to be immortal because he clones himself. Each clone appears in public only between the ages of 25 and 30. Also, as an absolute size, uh, Kaiser Popist, oh, uh, Kaiser Papist dictator, he does awful things. This infamy must end. Among the underground rebels who aim to end the hyper pope's abominable reign, there are two strategies. The first strategy is to spread this dangerous truth about the hyper pope. The second is to genetically engineer a russet two-headed heifer. Now, he begins a new section, the false theory of hyper-Bitcoinization. The meaning of the parable is that if you want to overthrow a regime, you first step, your first step is to stop believing in it. If you want the real Bitvana, you need to believe in reality. If any of the legends of the regime are stuck in your brain, they will probably lead you to bad, ineffective strategies for overthrowing it. Even worse, it might lead you to bad, ineffective theories of how it will overthrow itself. You could just wait for the heifer. When people tell you the dollar is about to collapse or anything else, etc., they are into the, they are into the false theory. Believing in the financial hyperpope corresponds to taking graphs like this seriously, and he lays out um, a the Fed balance sheet, which shows an up, down, and then a, a rapid increase. This graph of M0, the monetary base, this is the number of actual dollars. When people use metaphors like printing money, they are believing in the hyperpope, as we'll see below. By criticizing the Fed in language that inherently repeats the Fed's own propaganda, they are not attacking the system, they are stabilizing it. As the previous post on informal securities discussed, your bank deposit is not an actual dollar. It's a bundle of a zero term, continuously renewed loan of an actual dollar to the bank and B, a credit default swap on the bank deposit insurance. The sum of all deposits plus M0 is M1, bank money. Above 250,000, your credit default swap is informal security, an unwritten promise that the economies in practice depend on like property rights in the third world slum. Moreover, below 250,000, you are still banking on an informal security. FDIC's promise to bail out your bank is formal, but the Fed's promise to bail out FDIC is informal. Whoa. Believing, the hype, believing in the hyperpope is believing our banking system is a free market economy. In a free market economy, informal securities do not exist because inf informality is the flexibility of power to do whatever the hell it wants. If you believe in these informal securities, if you believe these informal securities do not exist, you must believe there is a hard line between M0 and M1. If there is a hard line between M0 and M1, for example, if the Fed repudiated its informal option to the FDIC or the FDIC repudiated its, its formal option to the banks, everything would explode. Since everything does not explode, there's no such hard line. The monetary base 
used to believe or used to be the gold reserve. No one can print gold. We are no longer on the gold standard, but we have many paper systems designed for it. And we have a lot of language to think in terms of it. Thinking in this language is believing in the hyperpope. Paper is not gold and does not work like gold at all. So I'll, I'll pause it for a second. Um, I kind of agree with what he's saying, where if you start using the terms and entering the framing that the Fed creates um, or the fiat system imposes on you, you're you're kind of entering into their game and you're playing their game. And, and that's going to like, you're, you're starting off by uh, ceding a bunch of ground to them. I always kind of got a bad impression or like it left a bad taste in my mouth whenever, ever since I got into Bitcoin, whenever a lot of these Bitcoiners try to come in and bring like all this technical jargon, financial jargon to discuss Bitcoin rather than, I mean, and there were Bitcoin memes that kind of existed to go against all this, where you kind of just have like the, like the low IQ Neanderthal guy, like, oh, orange coin, good number go up, like fixed supply, 21 million. That's all that matters. And like these simple ideas is really all that you need. And I, uh, I feel like when people overcomplicate it, it, um, it kind of, even if you are ultimately making a pro Bitcoin case, you're kind of doing it in a bad way. And it's much better to just keep it simple. Like this thing can't be censored by the regime and it has a fixed supply of 21 million. I mean, what more do you need to know? Like what, what else is necessary to know before you decide that you want Bitcoin at that point? Yeah, absolutely. The, I continue. Generally, the language of the 20th century financial system makes us think the lie that there is a hard line between M0 and M1. When we talk about the Fed printing money, when M0 increases with dramatic curves like the one above, we are talking as if M0 was gold and the Fed has found the philosopher's stone. It isn't, and it hasn't. In fact, M0 is U.S. government equity, government stock, and M1 includes options on U.S. equity. When we calculate the money supply, which means calculating the number of United States government shares outstanding, the fully diluted equity, we need to include all the potential shares the U.S. government has written, including all these informal options. For the market value of these informal options can only be defined by asking the question, what would happen to the markets if all informal options were repudiated? In that world, only a few trillion in real U.S. government dollars would exist to repay over $100 trillion in financial promises denominated in real U.S. government dollars. The market price of these promises, debts, bonds, stocks, etc., would rapidly decline. Indeed, they would perform what Elon Musk calls a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. The difference between the price of these promises with and without the stealth options in, in the United States government's hidden equity like some skeezy company in Panama, US gov the US government has issued way more shares than it wants you to know. The reason printing money is a bad metaphor is that all the US government equity is not issued from formal securities. It's conjured into being as a sort of virtual particle through the potential power of creating formal equity. Suppose the US government were to issue monopoly default swaps. That would allow you to take your monopoly money pre-1991 Parker Brothers sets only, to the bank and traded for real money. 
no one would need to trade their old monopoly money. They could just spend it. But since no one traded it in, no new dollars would be literally printed. The Fed could do this for Beanie Babies or old bottle caps or anything else. Let me stop here right quick. So do you, um, his framing of um, the the U.S. government here, do you guys see that as, as a legitimate, accurate framing as to why, um, as to how the dollar is uh, working? I, I, to be honest, I, I don't feel qualified to, to talk to it in terms of how accurate it represents everything. I think to Mike's point, though, like it's it, the, the way I take it is it's just like this reducto ad absurdum um, of how overly complex and just, you know, what, what nonsense the, the legacy financial, financial system is, right? It's, I mean, it all just seems like these overcomplicated games to justify essentially power doing what it wants. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just take, I just, I enjoy this article as like a, it just a send up of that really. And, um, um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how, how, how accurate he is in terms of like describing this and, and, and how it relates to whatever modern economic theory, et cetera. I just, I just don't, I don't have much to comment on that. In that case, I continue. Inflation explained. Next section. Unlike any company, the U.S. government is a sovereign. The profit and loss of a sovereign company is its balance of trade. The capital is its land and people. Historically, the stablest sovereigns both trade and save in exogenous currency, such as gold or beanie babies. A sovereign company whose people must save in its own sovereign equity is weird. One in which buys, one which buys imports in its sovereign equity is weirder. The former is as if Microsoft made an online game whose currency was MSFT stock, and the latter as if Microsoft bartered Microsoft stock for office chairs. And if there were banks in the online game, and if Microsoft insured those banks, maybe only up to 100 shares, we'd have a lovely replica of the US government system. Hopefully this system is a metaphor Reserve, uh, removes some of the ancient mystique of the Fed. Per Milton Friedman, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Shills and fools insist on mismeasuring it so they can smuggle up out the door. Most of the liabilities of the banking system measured by the simple crash test above in which informal securities are repudiated. And uh, are these informal securities? Nor does informal value at, uh, end at banking's edge. Everyone on Wall Street has heard of the famous Fed put, which used to be the Greenspan put. For those without finance background, Wikipedia's description may be evocative. The term Greenspan put is a play on uh, the term put option, which is a financial instrument that creates con contractual ob obligation, giving its holder the right to sell an asset at a particular price to a counterparty, regardless of what is the prevailing market price of the asset thus providing a measure of insurance to the holder of the put against falls in the price of the asset. While Greenspan did not offer such contractual obligation under its chair, the Federal Reserve taught markets that when a crisis arose and market stock stocks fell, the, the Fed would engage in a series of monetary tools, mostly via Wall Street investment banks, that would cause the stock market falls to reverse. The actions were also referred to as backstopping the markets. 
Informal securities for everyone. Well, at least every stockholder. Informal securities for the rich and the middle class too. No wonder our free market economy is tech plus energy plus minerals plus hospitals, universities, and government plus a hollow shell of F-I-F-I-F-I-R-E. It has been bloated on soy and cheap loans for a century and change. Drive across America and you'll see the burning. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I just wanted to uh, pause and I, I don't know exactly. I didn't read this one beforehand, so I don't know exactly where he's going with all this or if he's just trying to kind of um, describe the the way this system works. But he's talking kind of about how a lot of people are all tied up in all kinds of asset classes and contracts that they don't necessarily understand or that they don't know why. And I think that is an inevitable result of all of this fiat, this fiat nonsense system that, that we're operating in. Um, and I, I just wanted to point out that I think this is something that Bitcoin clearly fixes, um, where uh, when you're using Bitcoin and you understand the Bitcoin on-chain base layer, and you understand that there's a fixed supply of, of units at the end of the day, the 21 million, um, or the approximate number of sats that will ever be um, released into circulation, um, you... Everyone understands, everyone using Bitcoin understands the difference between having the keys to your own on-chain Bitcoin secured in your own wallet and um, whatever other financial instrument or asset you think you hold that's not that. Like if you have Bitcoin on Coinbase or if you have uh, like MicroStrategy stock, you can you can look up and people kind of get an idea. It's like, oh, my MicroStrategy stock is... is MicroStrategy holds this much Bitcoin and I have this percentage of the total outstanding MicroStrategy shares. So technically speaking, it's kind of like I own one Bitcoin or something like that. But everybody still, even people who are doing that, they still understand and intuitively understand the difference between that one Bitcoin that you think you own through Michael Saylor versus the one Bitcoin that you have secured in your wallet. And at the end of the day, the claims of people who think that they have Bitcoin that they haven't secured themselves um, can can go to any number. It could go to like a billion bitcoins if there's all kinds of fractional reserve schemes. But but at the end of the day, there's no confusion between what is on chain bitcoin that's validated by your node and what isn't. And with the fiat system, this can get all mixed up. Like if your bank is doing fractional reserve and you have a thousand dollars in your checking account, um, the bank might have lent out all kinds of uh. The, the bank might have lent out 900 of your $1,000 and you think you have a thousand there. And then the guy who borrowed the $900 thinks he has 900. And as far as the two of you doing business with each other is concerned, you um, there's $1,900 there, but ultimately there was really only 1000, but you can't see the difference because the fiat system obscures it all. and makes it all uh, confusing and the, the units can't be distinguished, but, but Bitcoin does fix this and in Bitcoin, the units are distinguished by your node. I, I think that's a great point. I I agree with you, Mike, on that on on that essential what differentiation of the two systems, and also the fact that Bitcoin fixes it. Um, and and I, but I push back on one point. I feel like yeah, Bitcoin does fix it. Um, you said that like, it, and it's very easy to understand, and, and and people in Bitcoin understand it. I'll push back a little bit on that because I feel that that's a process of you going down the rabbit hole. And I feel like, you know, even like for me talking as, you know, individually and I'm, but I've heard this from other people is, you know, when I own, like when I initially bought Bitcoin, 
you know, I didn't understand Bitcoin. And I, in fact, didn't understand Bitcoin for, for many years after even purchasing Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin. And it was just this series of like uh, revelations or, you know, light bulbs going off where, for example, I, I was also buying micro strategy stock because, you know, I was thinking, well, there's tax advantages and I could, you know, put it in this tax wrapper, blah, blah, blah. And then, but you, you you eventually come to the bottom of the rabbit hole where you realize, you know, micro strategy stock is a shit coin. It's just a derivative. There's execution risk. Um, but, pro, you know, pro, there's, there's no way for me to verify that Sailor owns the Bitcoin he says he owns or that, you know, that, that like jurisdiction risk, jurisdictional risk isn't going to come up where the U.S. is just going to seize the whatever paper claims that micro strategy thinks they have, et cetera, et cetera. And so... So, so, so Bitcoin fixes it when you realize that you, the only value really to Bitcoin, the only thing that makes it different to the legacy financial system, the house of cards that um, Curtis is describing in his article, is when you when you own it yourself, when you possess it yourself, when you have your own full node and you can uh, verify that and you verify you own what you think you own, that is Bitcoin and everything else is a shit coin, everything else. Um um, but but I feel like that pro, like the, the the number of people who actually are there and that level of understanding I feel is still very small even compared to the uh, even talking about the holders of Bitcoin or people even in the Bitcoin space like I don't think even like Nick Carter understands this for example um, like as, as smart as he is and as much as he as he knows and as, and as insightful as he is for example right and so um, you know I, I that the only thing I'd push back on you a little bit is that I you know I feel like that isn't as widely understood as maybe you think it is but 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 what do you think any any pushback on that yeah that's fair enough uh, i mean i guess um it, i guess it does go without saying that you have to kind of understand bitcoin to some degree to be able to do this but once you do then you have this ability and it doesn't matter who you are like you you can just be a pleb uh whereas in the fiat system you as the pleb have no you have no full node that you can use to verify what the like the base layer dollars. You you your dollars are the same as the the guy holding the the one hundred dollar bill is the same as the guy with the one hundred dollars in his checking account is the same as the guy who received the one hundred dollar loan from the bank. Like all of those dollars are, um, um, what's the word uh, fungible, right? Um, yeah. And then if you if you try to call this out, then you're going to get the PhDs coming at you, and they're going to send you like a one thousand page report and about how the Fed works and how you don't understand finance and, and whatever. But at the end of the day, you have no way to just be like, my full node says this, orange coin good, number go up. Like you, you can't do those. You can't just break it down to this simple level. Um, and there's no escaping the fact that you're going to have to deal with all this, this, this big system of lies that the, the professional expert class has crafted. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd, I'd also say it's even worse than, people think and maybe even like i i had thought like reading this curtis yarvin article again now um it's almost like he's 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 pointing at the emperor and saying look the guy's naked there's no clothes because you know you're kind of operating under this assumption that base money is you know one thing and there's kind of derivatives and what have you that are built on top of that um and that maybe the issue the problem is things like fractional reserve banking but what he's saying is you know you even even the, even even the base money is kind of like this it's not what you think it is right it's almost like we the, the fiat system had and the fractional reserve system etc had been built at least at least gold was at the base level and so there was some kind of grounding in reality but th that is 
that doesn't exist now either. And so even the like this base money is just like what was the language he used? It's like this informal security or what have you. And so it's almost like this entire system is just, a, um, it's, you know, it's built on sand or it's, or it's a house of cards, whatever metaphor you want to use, but it's just this kind of um, system of informal securities, which are essentially as, as Curtis also mentions in his article, it's just a means of power to do what it wants because, and as we saw with the, you know, the FDIC stuff and the collapse of Silicon Valley bank, where, the Fed, I believe it was, or, or whatever entity they set up to do this, had, has covered more than the 250k of um, uh, uh, of insurance, and you know they can choose. That's at their discretion whether they choose to do that or not, right? And it was maybe it was their friends, or it was p p powerful people, or politically connected people, the donor class, etc., who were exposed here, and they they were bailed out. Whereas maybe if it was some pleb. Um, in in another bank that collapses somewhere, or you know, as we've seen with these kind of quote unquote crypto related things that have collapsed, you know, plebs are just kind of thrown thrown to the wolves. Um, so you know, it's it's kind of it, it's an illuminating article in that sense, where it's almost like what we thought was bad is actually a lot worse than we than what the what worse than we thought. I mean, there really is no, you know, there's there's no point where you. There's no point where you could say, okay, well, if we just maybe if we just in increase the reserve requirements of banks, or you know, then we could stabilize the system, or this would be a sustainable system going forward. No, it's like this is a corrupt, rotten system from the base la layer up, and it's it's almost like it's just impossible to um, to to recover or to make this work. Curtis continues. Of course, the Fed does not need informal instruments to manipulate stocks. When it sets short-term interest rates, it manipulates the price of all long-term assets. When it sets long-term interest rates by quantitative easing and tightening, it sets the price of all long-term assets, fixing the whole yield curve control. The bod vigilantes have not been seen in 30 years, nor the gnomes of Zurich in 50. Much capitalism, such free market. Furthermore, setting interest rates adjusts the price of tangible capital assets, notably our good friend, real estate. When your house was going up 100,000 a year, was it becoming a better house? Was that linoleum in the kitchen healing? Of course not. It was all just the Fed piping informal securities into the attic. It's all money, always has been. If we imagine the two monetary aggregates, M6 and M7, M6 being all financial assets and M7 adding all finan uh, financed assets, we might see a curve that looks something like this. And here he shows uh, a, 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 a curve sloping upward. And this graph, I believe, is the best metric of inflation we have. Inflation is a function of too much spending power, chasing too little productive power. The spending power of the consumer is the total net worth of the consumer, which is this graph. Note that the dips and flats in the graph mostly match those mysterious space storms of the credit system are recessions shown by the gray bars. Prices are a function of consumer demand measured in nominal dollars, and consumer demand depends on spending power, which is personal net worth. It may depend slightly on the asset allocation of the consumer, but does your spending really change depending on whether your portfolio consists of stocks, bonds, or cash? Even literally illiquid assets like houses influence spending indirectly. Note that this M7 aggregate is like 30 times the size of M0. This is why people who point to graphs of M0 and talk about printing money are completely out, out to lunch. 
Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That is, a function of spending. That is, function of net worth dollars. A dollar of net worth is a dollar. Why has this whole curve gone up like yeast since 1950? Was it actually because our cars got more reliable and our TVs got sharper? Why does the increasing dollar-denominated net worth? Maybe some of its population increase. Why should even increasing population require more and more dollars? This is not even an economic reasoning. It's just sim sympathetic magic. It's all money, always has been. Next section. Repudiation and recognition. The three horsemen of, th of third world finance, informality, discretion, and uncertainty are inseparable. All of the Fed's power is discretion to backstop markets with infinite dollars, just as Microsoft in the above example could backstop its in-game financial market with infinite potential Microsoft shares to ensure banks set interest rates and so on. Everyone is supposed to think the Fed's discretion is the cure for financial crises. It is, of course. It is also their cause. A duration-matched financial system without informal securities will not need any discretion or uncertainty. It will be stable without any uh, systematic price fluctuations, inflation, deflation, credit crashes, or business cycles. Dear future, try and see it. The vast power of the Fed becomes visible when we imagine it repudiating all its informal promises, many of which, through the power of swap lines, have wound up financing things like Indonesian palm oil plantations in dollars. Think about all the dollar debt in the world. Now think about the size of M0. Think about the game of musical chairs that ensues when $5 trillion have to pay off $10 trillion in debt. You can call this the dollar collapse if you want, but would it, but it would be hyperinflation. Uh, it would be hyperdeflation, not hyperinflation. And it would be global. Grown men in Cambodia would murder each other for a quarter. A few thousand bucks would buy you an island in the, in the Seculs, and an island, indeed, would be a good place to be. The unstoppable, excuse me, the unstable dollar economy is always about to collapse without informal action. It will collapse instantly, but only downward. And this will never happen because no one has any reason to let it happen, as we saw during the exogenous crisis, COVID. Look at the uh, look on the graph above and see how much value COVID created. Think of the dollar financial system as a wingsuit jumper doing proximity flying. It always looks like the wingsuit is about to crash into the ground and sometimes mistakes are made and this happens. Actually, when you fly close to the ground, you are using every control surface you have to push the suit down. This means that if you screw anything up, you fly upward into the air. Similarly, any failure of informal securities makes the dollar skyrocket in a so-called dollar shortage. Free market economies I, do not have. Sorry, I uh, just wanted to push back on one thing. I'm not sure if it's covered later on in the in the article, but he mentions that um, it's it's this is an interesting idea, and um, he he talks about how it's in everyone's sort of interest to continue with the with the with the charade, if you like, right? That's, I think that's the point of the previous couple of paragraphs. Um, but I don't think that's true anymore with uh, what we're seeing with uh, with Russia and China, for example, and the kind of movement from the BRICS countries and certain countries in South America, where it seems that 
certain countries have decided that maintaining the current status quo and, and carrying the charade on going forward is not in their best interest and they're actually making active use active moves to move away from it um so in that sense is his idea here perhaps a little dated if that for example the russians and the chinese would see this as an opportunity if there was instability in the dollar system to to then provide an alternative in like a yuan you know or, or ruble uh, system i know that the chinese and russian central banks for example have been uh, buying gold now for a, for a number of years i know that the major central banks around the world have been reducing their reserves of dollars and i think something from its peak at I may have the numbers wrong here, but it's something like 70% of, of reserves have declined to something like 50% of reserves are now uh, dollars in, in, in global central banks. So is yeah, is, is, his, is his idea a little dated here? Are the moves that we're seeing indicative that people are not uh, looking to keep the charade going and keep the dollar uh, hegemony going? And... You know, is, for example, even the, the kinetic war now in Ukraine and the movements of Putin there and, and the tacit support of the Chinese, is that, is that actually a, a deliberate act to destabilize the, the dollar system to uh, even, you know, maybe participate something like an inflationary crisis? Um, and, you know, um, any, any ideas there? There is an element of the whole charade can only keep going if there the the international demand for the dollar remains, and as we see people, as we see a large portion of the world, especially the productive world, moving away from the dollar slowly but surely. Um, I think that is like like we discussed last time. Um, that is the first step towards. Um, towards like an actual substantial change uh, for the dollar and, and dollar hegemony, like you said. Another thing I want to point out about, uh, he's talking about, on, on the one hand, he's like M0, M1, M2, all the way to M6, M7, all these financialized assets. At the end of the day, it's all just dollars. I It seems like that's incompatible with what he says later, where um, he talks about this hyper deflation when everything's just going to crash downwards. Um, because at the end of the day, there, there is a clear distinction between the base money supply that's literally printed versus the credit expansion that just comes out of this fractional reserve banking lend, like all these lending schemes, uh, where once they start doing it, the, uh, credit supply is going to be increasing all and, and, um, pushing out all throughout the, the economy. But then once everything tightens, it all contracts rapidly too. Um, so at the end of the day, it, there is a difference, but I guess he's kind of, um, going off of the assumption that when it contracts, it's always just going to contract back and crash everything. Uh, on, on the one hand, it's ignoring the fact that the base money supply still does continue to increase over time and uh, pretty rapidly too. And then even though there's a, a contraction over the short term or like in the downward part of the cycle, the next cycle goes out off of a higher base usually. And so th uh, the, the peaks of each cycle get higher and higher as the base of the, the low point of each cycle gets, gets higher and higher too. Um, and uh, 
I, I forget. The, sorry, there was something else I wanted to say. I just lost my train of thought. Go ahead, Dash. Well, no, I was going to say I was going to agree with you. I, you. You raise an excellent point that he does kind of contradict himself, right? In that he's saying that you know we should be looking at the M seven, like the, the the net worth is is the is the signal. Then he's talking about that. Yeah, the the lack that was sort of the 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 claim to the base money would would. Pre- participate this kind of rush for dollars this deflationary spiral so you, you raise a good point there and i also thought that um on, on that note as well i feel like like the base money uh, you know and and uh and, and i'm not you know i'm not an expert here so this might be wrong but my my feeling is that an increase in the base money is not the same as an increase in you know the m6 or the m7 or what, what have you or, or or that the increase in the higher levels those those you know m m1 to m7 or a kind of function of the increase in the base money where, where, you know, where the fed creates the base money and then there's the derivatives that kind of multiply on top of that. And so, you know, it kind of makes sense for me to, 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 to focus on the base money as, as a result. Um, it's just an idea I had based on, on what you'd said. So, um, yeah. yeah and, and I guess what I was, yeah, what I was going to say at the end is um, it, it's not necessarily the case, although that's usually the case that, um, uh, at, at, at the high point of the cycle, then it crashes and it, the money supply contracts down back towards the base um, to to get the downward part of the, the cycle to keep the cycles going. But I mean, ultimately, with the fiat regimes, the cycles end in the end, and when they end, that's that it's the, it's finally the cycle where that doesn't happen anymore, and the hyperinflation does come, and instead of everything crashing. Uh, the money, the the money printers truly do turn on, and everybody's just trying to get everything that they can while they still can. And I think one of the things that leads to that is um, where the the supply of things that you can actually buy with with that fiat currency is dwindling, and that can be uh, that seems to be happening. Like the result of it's the result of all this un- like incompetence and lack of productivity all throughout America. But then when the rest of the world is moving away from demanding the dollars, then the dollars become less in demand. So the, the money itself is less, de- uh, is less demanded and the, the supply of what it can buy is going down. And then the rest of the world's moving away into to other, like demanding other current currencies and the things that you can buy require other currencies. So now if the, if the, government if the federal government wants to be buying things maybe in the long run if the rest of the world is moving off of the dollar it's going to have to be spending money or spending other currencies or borrowing in other currencies to get the things that it needs and then that is like i think the major pivotal uh, sorry uh or the major pivot or turning point for where now they're going to be borrowing money in foreign currencies in the long run and then that's where you can no longer print your way out of your debt and and that's that's like the path to the Weimar or the hyperinflation. Curtis continues. The correct way to formalize all these informal securities is to recognize them as real, like turning informal property rights in a Lima slum into real title deeds. This will be neutral for private net worth. While this is easy For bank money, it effectively means recognizing that all banks are branches of the Fed. It is much uh, much trickier for tangible assets. With a stock or a house, 
there is no way to measure or define the contribution of monetary policy to valuation. The only way to reset the monetized asset to market prices without damaging everyone's private net worth is to nationalize them all at a market price, fix the money supply, and auction them back at the new free market, presumably at a lower price. This will result in a moderate one-time increase in private net worth. Next section, the true theory of hyper-Bitcoinization. The true road to Bitvana is simple. It is the shelling point of capital flight. The best way to conceive of the nation of Bitcoin hodlers is as a nation, Bitstand. The new reason to move your money to Bitcoins in Bitstand, if you are an American in the 2030s, is the same as the old reason to move your money to gold in Switzerland, if you're an American in the 1930s. What is the motivation of capital flight? There are three motivations of capital flight, two push, capital dilution and capital destruction, and one pull, capital compression. Dilution in a company is an increasing quantity of shares, formal, informal. As we have seen, the best measure of a sovereign money supply on a fiat system like the U.S. government's is just consumer net worth. The more everyone's portfolio and house goes up, the more dollars are chasing the same number of goods. Rising house prices dilute your dollars, and not just dollars used to buy houses. Destruction is when your risky assets fail, effectively impossible for bank money, but quite possible for stocks and houses and the like. In the expansion, of, in the expansion phase of the cycle, risk assets are where money wants to be. They grow the fastest. In a recession, money, isn't, money retreats to the banks where it earns zero interest, and risk assets lose money. Isn't this game fun? Deflation slash recession increases the value of your dollars, but only if you can shuffle them around fast enough. Compression is when uh, everyone buys Bitcoin that make, that make, and that makes Bitcoin go up, or when everyone buys gold and that makes gold go, go up. There's still a lot more gold by value than Bitcoin. So the people who know the theory, the more, the, the more people who profit. The key point about capital flight is that it is only a shelling point if it is the end stage, if the end stage is stable. If all rich people's capital goes to Bitstand, for, for instance, what does that do to the economy of Bitstand? Capital flight normally goes to countries with a trade surplus. But what does Bitstand export? Bitstand, in fact, leaks money, not least because mining creates four sellers. Parentheses, perhaps an Ethereum flipping would help. Capital flight is a thing in boom or bust because dilution is a thing in the boom and destruction is a thing in the bust. And compression is always a thing. And there he ends. The article continues, but the, uh, the uh, eye access to it uh, ends there. I'm not sure how much further he would go with it. Yeah, that's, that's all I read as well. I, I just, again, he talks about the... Um, and that's an, that's an interesting point to end it on, though, I think. But he talks about a couple of things, one that we talk, spoke about last week and one that we spoke about a, a few minutes ago about the one Bitcoin leaking money, um, which I think we sort of repudiated. Right. But the and the other one is about the, you know, bit stand. Essentially, what I think he's saying is there's like a lack of productivity within the B Bitcoin ecosystem or something like that is the way I'm reading this. And he kind of made that in, uh, point in, in, uh, earlier in the article, which we spoke about last week um but again I, f I feel like 
you know, on one hand, I feel like he's missing a lot that's going on in terms of there is definitely an economy for Bitcoin and a use for Bitcoin. You know, I pay for things in Bitcoin because I because um, for example, things like VPN services, I benefit from that kind of pseudonymity uh, when using Bitcoin to buy those. So there's, there's there's those real real use cases which might be minor at this point, but but there's also you know you've got El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as um, a, a sort of legal currency, and so you can go there and you can spend Bitcoin. You can go to Bitcoin Island in the Philippines. You can go to Bitcoin Jungle in Costa Rica. So there's all all sorts of places popping up where you can go and you can use your your Bitcoin. So I feel like, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of sleeping on that a little bit. Although, you know, what I, what I would like to say, and especially because it's going to be mainly, I believe Bitcoin is listening to us talking about this is, you know, he kind of, I feel like this should be a challenge also to Bitcoiners. And I feel like as Bitcoiners, we're not doing enough uh, to, to have this kind of, uh, yeah, to be productive and have the trade surplus and, 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 and to have an economy where, whereby people can use Bitcoin. Um, and so I feel like, you know, one of the reasons I, I'm involved in this podcast, and I think, I think Andy, why, why you know, you, you started it was to, you know, we want to make a platform for builders and we want to be involved in encouraging the circular economy and for, for Bitcoiners to be offering goods and services in Bitcoin. And I feel like, so I'd like to take this actually, this end point as, as a challenge, really, this, this end point of his, um, to Bitcoiners that we need to, you know, we, we, Bitstan needs to have a trade surplus. We need to be productive. You know, we need to be starting businesses and, and offering goods and services in Bitcoin. Um, and that's essential for, you know, Bitcoin to succeed. And if, for example, I mean, his ideas about, I mean, Ethereum is a scam. It's a pre-mined, you know, it's an unregistered security, it, you know, whatever. We, we all know that. But at the end of the day, if, if an economy develops where people can actually use Ethereum, as, as big a scam as it is, I mean, the US dollar is a scam, but people still use it um, because because it is useful, right? Because you can go and buy, you can go and buy things quite easily using American dollars. And so I think, you know, the, 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 the potential risk could be that, you know, uh, Bitcoin, Bitstan is just the nation of hodlers who are, who, are, who are expecting just to sit on their holdings and just, and just you know, profit in the future. Whereas, in fact, what we need to be is a productive nation, you know, uh, which is the Citadel concept, I think, which we spoke about in maybe an earlier podcast. But it's like... You know the the, the 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 gauntlet is being thrown down here. I feel, and I feel, I feel like I'd like to accept this challenge that you know we need we need to we need to build this productive, you know, citadel, the bit stand where capital can come, and it will be safe here because you know because not not only because of the guarantees within the, the protocol level, the technical level in terms of the cap on issuance, twenty one maximum twenty one million verifiability, decentralization, etc., all those good things, but also because us as Bitcoiners are creating these communities and um you know creating and being productive and offering goods and services in bitcoin so yeah that's how i'd like to take this uh the, the finish to his article here i'd like to see, take this as a, as a challenge challenge and um going forward but that's yeah that, that, that's my thoughts right on yeah, I think uh, that's interesting. I'm actually going to try and get the um, I'm going to go and see what uh, what he writes after this. I, it didn't even dawn on me uh, when I was reading it before that that that, that there was a, a further section to it. I thought he ended there. So I'm curious how he's going to end it. So I, I'm going to try and uh, I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll drop onto the sub stack there and see uh, see what the rest of that is. Um, but, yeah, no, I think uh, what you said there, I, I I'm, I'm behind that. I don't I, I don't have as much concern about the hodler mentality because once it once you do reach a level of hodl people just do stuff they, you don't have to tell them they don't there there's no 
I don't I don't see a whole lot of people just uh, stacking and holding forever like like misers. It's just not how people generally are. They want to do stuff. They've they've been um, reticent to do it now just because they see the the massive ex explosion phase and that they um, that we're in with Bitcoin now. But as it does reach a uh, a level of stability when when the rapid increases are are, are less, then I I do think that that uh, uh, Bitcoin as capital gets deployed more easy because um, you even see that with it now. I mean, people will 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 throw stacks of Bitcoin around on on different thing on on different um, uh, on you know different trading platforms and whatnot. And we you know we at the at the meeting at the meetup the other day uh, we had the ten ten thirty one guy there, and people are are willing to take bets on that. They you know maybe less so than Ethereum. And other shitcoiny platforms, but still, um, capital is getting thrown around to productive businesses, and that's even with hardcore, hardcore Bitcoiners. So I'm less concerned about the, uh, um, the 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 miserliness of people in the long run. But that's just me. Mike, anything to add? It also just sounds to me like a kind of a fiat mentality to like this idea that oh, we need to artificially manipulate the the money supply that's what the fiat economists do is they say we need to artificially uh, inflate the money supply so that people don't hoard money and they'll be more productive and they'll they'll pump up numbers that we uh have deemed valuable in our abstract models i mean at the end of the day people want to hold bitcoin because it simplifies their their lives and it makes it so that they're not vulnerable to those kinds of attacks from economists and when you when you do something productive it's because you find it to be valuable and meaningful and it's something that you can contribute towards. Not, it's not because you're rushed into spending your money and making some kind of investment because the economists are diluting your the, the value of your units. I, f I feel like also though, Mike, that he's, he raises a valid point in that if you know, if thinking as a, a you know, try and imagine as a rich person you've got some capital and you're like okay well i'm being diluted in dollars so i need a safe haven and there's a number of choices there right like there's a stock market or there's a property somewhere overseas maybe or or there's gold or there's bitcoin and then if you're looking at bitcoin and you don't really you're not a bitcoiner um but you just start, you're just you're just considering it as this kind of safe haven for your capital you're going to be you're going to be thinking okay well you know if i move over to bitcoin you know, maybe it's going to be in Bitcoin for a while. Um, do I preserve my spending power, increase my spending power over time? And one of the risks that people are going to be, quite rightly, I think, um, is going to be coming to mind is, well, what if the kind of liquidity gets shut off? What if Bitcoin is is outlawed in the US? Uh, there's an executive order 6102. Um, and I'm stuck in this, you know, magical internet money that i can never get back i can i can't move into an, any other asset then it would be like a, they would see that as a risk there would be a risk of going down a dead end and so if you know that i feel like curtis's challenge to the to the bitcoin community is you know if if, if there if we lived in a world where like there, it was and for me i'm already in the, the world but i'm just saying if, if this was for if this was commonly understood that bitcoin could be a one-way thing like you go from dollar to bitcoin and you'd never even think about going back because if i need to buy a uh excuse me a, a house or if i need to you know even just get a get a haircut i know a hairdresser who accepts bitcoin to cut hair or 
you know, I know where I can buy a car in in Bitcoin, then you'd have a lot more confidence as someone who was trying to who had some capital that they could they could move into Bitcoin and they didn't really have to worry about going back. So I feel that's how I that's more how I take his challenge here. Mm -hmm. I I feel I feel like it's getting the order reversed, though, where ultimately, yeah, I think uh, the Bitcoin circular economy or whatever you want to call it is going to increase. But I don't think it's going to increase because people are trying to force um, spend their Bitcoin. It's it's going to be because people the, the demand for Bitcoin increases because people realize that there's no alternative. All the al other alternatives are just going to get hyperinflated away. I mean, your your other al sorry, your other alternatives are going to be currencies that are hyperinflating or CBDCs that are like enslaving you. So what else can you do? And, and then once that demand is there, then the um, it, it's not going to be you going up to the merchant and be like, it, it, you're going to be like, oh, I have all this Bitcoin that I'm trying to get rid of. Please take it. Please let me spend it at your store. It's going to be the opposite. The, the store owner is going to say, I don't want your sh shitcoin CBDC. I want Bitcoin instead. So in that sense, sure. I mean, it's pe productive people. The, the Bitcoiners are the productive people provide, providing products to the market. But I think it's because people recognize what Bitcoin is, and then they, they develop the demand for it in their own minds. And therefore, their productive activity gets contributed to the Bitcoin circular economy. That, that's an excellent point, actually. Yeah, you, you just made me think. And um, maybe just to add up some anecdote, anecdotes to that, you know, I, th I think it comes back to incentives, right, is what you're saying. And, um, you know, we don't have to force people to go and accept money in Bitcoin because the incentives are structured that we're going either into this dystopian surveillance state hellhole where, you know, you will you will own nothing and be happy and you'll have to accept every, you know, payments and CBDCs or people are going to be incentivized to es escape from that corrupt system, which doesn't work for them. And so naturally, there will be they will want to accept Bitcoin over non-free forms of money. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, it's a very good point. And also to just to add from my own anecdotal experience, like if you said to me, oh, you can do, you know, I don't know, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to make a website, for example. Just, just, to, just, just a crazy example. I, I don't think I'd bother to get out of bed for that, you know, because it's, I, I, it'd be like, oh, you know, I, I can't be bothered to learn, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to do the website. I'm going to, he's, he's probably going to have, you know, a thousand things he wants to change, you know, a thousand dollars. I mean, within, you know, what, what can you buy with a thousand dollars this day, these days? But if you said to me, oh, I'll give you a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin to make a website, like I would, I would bite your hand off for that, right? So there's just this, this for, for me personally, and maybe it's just because I'm a crazy Bitcoin and maybe I'm crazy, blah, blah, blah. I take it with a pinch of salt, but, I am far more incentivized when it comes to sats, even if the purchasing power is equivalent to the number of dollars, which does not interest me. If I can get sat, if I can earn sats, like like things like I, I do home mining. And, you know, if you told me, well, you could you can plug this noisy device and, and it generates heat and it's, you know, your, your wife's going to hate you. And, um, you know, are, are you going to do that for a dollar a day? It's like, of course I'm not. But if I if I can earn a dollars worth of Bitcoin a day, I do it. And so I feel, I, I feel like I'm not the only one there. And, and, and it's probably somewhat anecdotal evidence to your your idea that the the incentives are going to drive this and we it's not something that we need to force right it's driven by your insatiable demand for bitcoin not not your insatiable demand to spend your bitcoin right in fact it's the exact opposite well that concludes this section of curtis yarvin's Bit, uh, bit vana or bit cost. Any final words from you gentlemen?
nothing for me. I, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess we can uh, we can evaluate what he says in you know um, in 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 whatever the paid version of the article. Maybe consider that for a future episode. But I, I but I, th- I feel like we've probably covered the the main points and we said what we what we we're going to say. And I just I, I just feel, as a result of this doing this, I just feel more and more energized about Bitcoin. <laughs> And uh, and just and just the circular economy and building that and just from myself personally just going out and earning earning more Bitcoin. So yeah, it's just been a it's been it's been um, uh, an interesting and kind of in, um, even, even though even though it wasn't necessarily positive for Bitcoin or he didn't intend it that way. It's funny because I, I I've just taken this as mainly being an even more incentive and even more bull- makes me even more bullish about Bitcoin. So I don't know if that's just me, me being crazy or, or or you know maybe we're onto something here with this Bitcoin thing. Doomer Dad coming out anti-Doomer. Good for you. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. It's a good article. I enjoyed reading it, enjoyed thinking about it, and enjoyed hearing you gentlemen give us your opinion. But as we close out, remember to find us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. Find us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. Remember to support us at the Value for Value podcast with a thousand sad boost on Fountain or on the site, send us some love over there, building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.